Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, as always. And here we are at the final end of the rope with part one of I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the Killing That Shocked a New Nation by Bruce Chadwick. I know we have spent a great deal of time in part one, but at the same time, it's also essential to get as many facts uh, straight as possible in order to get a better understanding of where Mr. Wythe's life has taken him, not just in the past, but in the present, but how the past and the present are interwoven to where we get a better understanding of why the inevitable happened. In other words, here he was revered by so many people. 99.9% .9 of all people he, he knew revered him, and yet that small 0.1% out there who didn't like him, being his grandnephew, had, had the nerve to do the unthinkable, not just so much to steal from him, not just so much to be defiant, but to murder his own flesh and blood. So here we are in the final uh, segment of part one. We're going to be dis discussing the second life in Richmond, the return of George Wythe. In other words, we're going to um, focus on his time in Richmond and how um, he um, interacts with uh, people from all um, sectors of uh, society, most notably those whom he uh, mentors, as well as his um, role in the Virginia Chancery Court and how his um, position on that level or on that um, court tier, being that of the Chancery, will um, impact um decisions he um, reaches to where um, one system of government will prevail over the other. When I say system of government, I'm wondering what many of you all would think. Federal? State? In other words, are we going to have a justice on the Virginia Chancery Court, even though it's a state level, but is he going to be the type who would um, abide by what the federal government uh, goes by. In other words, you know, judges are, are independent. I mean, yes, um, even at the state level, a governor can appoint uh, someone to be on the state Supreme Court, just like the President of the United States can appoint a, a judge to, um, or, or nominate a judge to be on the United States Supreme Court. But on both levels, federal and state, it has to go through a nomination hearing, and then it, um, gets brought before uh, the Senate floor of both the uh, United States Senate as well as um, a state Senate. But that doesn't mean that judges whom are not on the state Supreme Court or United States Supreme Court, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that they don't have any power as well. Um, judges, regardless of their position, do have power. But yet for Mr. Wythe, even though he's not president of the United States, and yes, he was given an opportunity to serve on the United States Supreme Court, I believe it's fair to say that even Mr. Wythe himself will hold up to an oath. And we're going to find out what that oath will be as we move along into the final part of Part 1, being the second life in Richmond and the return of George Wythe. So our lead-off uh, question is the following. Was Richmond home to many of George Wythe's political friends and former students? The answer is yes. 
and uh, we will uh, talk some about uh, those uh, people here uh, momentarily. Now, how many years did George Wythe live in Williamsburg? He lived there for a very, very long time. He lived there for around, for roughly 40 years. So, he didn't stay long in Fredericksburg. He moved um, not long after his first wife had died from uh, Fredericksburg to Williamsburg. But he was living there pretty much from the early 1750s up until um, 1791, which is the year that he officially moves to Richmond. He would leave behind many friends. And yes, he was still in mourning. How so? Because four years earlier, his second wife, Elizabeth, whom he had been married to for almost 32 years, died. And it was a very, very um, crushing blow for him. As I mentioned from the previous podcast, um, Mr. Wythe's um, wife uh, ran many of the uh, household affairs at the um, estate that still is in existence today at Colonial Williamsburg, being the George Wythe house. But his wife was in control of the finances. She was in control of um, overseeing many of the day-to-day daily operations. But nonetheless, uh, his wife's death is a very, very... um, emotional loss because they had a lot of love and affection for one another. So he is about 65 years of age in 1791 when he officially moves to Richmond. You know, even at age 65, you know, yes, he still has a strong mind, he's very active, but yet he is battling medical issues that range from arthritis to gout. And he is having to, um, adapt to new, um, what you call maybe teachings, or let alone adapt to new um, methods for being able to um, work on a day-by-day basis. He's having to teach himself how to print letters using his left hand. So obviously, he's been right-hand his whole life, but now he's having to learn how to do it with the opposite. He's also having to hire clerks whom could do most of his writing. You know, the clerks are the ones who do a lot of the um, research. You know, they um, review, you know, past cases that might be be similar to the current case that's on the docket or what's being being, um, in the courtroom. In other words, uh, an actual case that's going on and the clerks are, you know, having to review past cases to see where those decisions uh, were based where the decisions from those cases, um, how they were based upon, and how the current case uh, will either make or break um, past precedents that had been uh, set. So his clerks are having to do most of his writing for him, and at the same time, with himself has bought a home close by to the capital, which will allow a shorter walk to work in the mornings. So in other words, he's having to uh, you know reinvent himself. But it's not all bad. But at the same time, he's got to make sure that, you know, his health is a priority. And while he's acknowledged that, okay, maybe I'm not able to do as many things as I once was before, I could still do some things, but at the same time, I'm going to need a little bit more extra help than previously before. So in the eyes of many, George Wythe has struggled to maintain a state of happiness. Wherever he went, people saw signs of sadness, ranging from his wife's passing to personal friends whom had passed before. 
and those personal friends could have been some whom he had met in Philadelphia um, when it came to signing the Declaration of Independence, as well as um, when uh, debates took place on the U.S. Constitution. With has made friends from all walks of life, and there's no doubt about it, because with knows how to be a friend, he's never taken advantage of anyone, and he has gone above and beyond to teach his students not only to become successful lawyers and politicians, but how to become successful uh, gentlemen in the sense of how they are to conduct themselves in every, what do you call it, to conduct themselves with the utmost uh, professionalism in everyday settings. Now, prior to leaving Williamsburg for Richmond, what would become George Wythe's last performing act in Williamsburg? This is going to be a, a very, very important one, and it's also going to shape um, how he will make um, or let alone render judicial or judiciary decisions on the court, especially given that he has um, been in the uh, Chancery Court as early as 1789. But, of course, his move to Richmond is not for another two years later. But this last performing act um, does set the tone for what will come in the last uh, 17 years of his life. He freed many of his most loyal house slaves, most notably Lydia Broadnax, which happened well before 1791. She was actually freed in 1787, the same year that the U.S. Constitution uh, went into effect, and also that was the same... Well, I take it back. Lydia Broadnax was actually... Um, she was freed in 1787. I take that back. She was. Um, pardon, pardon me for that uh, little mishap there. But yes, she was freed in 1787. Um, however, uh, Mr. Wythe did free about three out of uh, 15 slaves that belonged to his wife's family. Now, I'm sure some of you are wondering why only three. Well, he had to return the other slaves back to um, her family. That was part of the... Um, what do you call it, I guess, marriage agreement or uh, some kind of um, property agreement that had been established um, well before uh, his wife's passing. But he did free some of those slaves, about 3 out of 15, which would mean 20% um, at best. He did sell his uh, plantation in Chesterville, which is now present-day Hampton, Virginia, and he also uh, freed a handful of slaves, being about two dozen, whom resided there. So, all in all, it is fair to say that George Wythe did free many of his uh, slaves, more so than, say, George Washington did, more so than um, some of the other uh, prominent um, slave owners in Virginia society at this time. Now, Given that George Wythe has moved, or let alone has moved from Williamsburg to Richmond, what could this break also represent? He's not just moving from one from one former capital to the other, being the the new capital. He it's not so much to yes find to start a new life, given that he has lost so much from Williamsburg, but this move has also meant that he has severed all ties involving slavery from his life altogether. Would it be fair to say that George Wythe has little regard for the institution of slavery? Absolutely. 
However, when he, you know, married and and growing up, I mean, yes, he was a part of that institution in terms of um, slaves uh, working the properties that his family uh, ran. But we're going to find out here shortly why he has such a big change of heart. But I personally believe it's all for the right reasons. I mean, it is fair to say that there were obviously great statesmen from the time that our forefathers were alive who uh, deplored the institution. And it wasn't so much on a regional basis, north and south, but there were, um, at the same time, many of our forefathers who were slave owners did struggle with the um, with the question over whether it was right or not. I do know that when um, visiting Colonial Williamsburg, there was one time where my, my wife and I went, and um, a fellow who portrays George Washington, and he does a phenomenal job with it. Um, one person in the crowd asked him what his issue, what what stances or issues he took upon uh, slavery. Mr. Washington responded back by saying that I had no, I have no comment on the matter. The reason for that, folks, is because George Washington married the wealthiest woman in Virginia, Martha Dandridge Custis. She was a widow, but she inherited her husband's fortunes, which made her the wealthiest woman, in not just in Virginia, but at the time the largest of the 13 colonies. So when George Washington marries Martha, his status is greatly enhanced, and the property that he inherits from Martha from marriage becomes pretty much his. So whatever George Washington were to say, let's just say he, he did make random comments. Whatever he says can and would be used against him. And it also could mean um, being disowned, not just from family within his family, but being disowned by family members of uh, Martha's. So it's a real um, tough silver line uh, to walk. You know, yes, deep down inside you may not like something, but whatever you say about it out in the open can and would be used against you. So status, especially amongst the Virginia gentry, is a very, very um, important thing, but at the same time, how they conduct themselves out in the open um, is also a reflection upon the rest of society, too. So, did George Wythe feel uncomfortable with owning slaves throughout his life? Yes, he did. But as I said earlier, he did have to rely upon them um, as he got older when he was um, made the chief executor of the Chesterville Plantation, which he, uh, which he had that title bestowed upon him after his brother passed away in 1755. This also include, uh, included the estate in Williamsburg, where he and his wife lived for many years. That's uh, still around and open to the public. But over time, Mr. Wythe's attitude towards the system itself drastically changed. I, I think it's fair to say that just before, the, just before separation from England, that Wythe's um, attitude towards the institution of slavery started to change. He greatly uh, influenced uh, men like Thomas Jefferson and all other law students to be against the practice itself. And yes, George Wythe did free. He was able to go about freeing a handful of his slaves. But what about Thomas Jefferson, the student whom he adored and mentored, 
What did Thomas Jefferson, I mean, was Thomas Jefferson able to free any slaves in his lifetime? I mean, yes, he was a slave owner, and he inherited uh, slaves, uh, most notably through his wife, Martha. But unfortunately, Jefferson was not able to. There were a variety of reasons why. One of them, most notably, was was due to the heavy amount of uh, debt he, he was in um, up until the day he died, and a lot, and also too, um, towards the end of um, his life, uh, Virginia's economy was not in good um, standing, and so therefore, he had no way to be able to um, get back anything in return. Just because, uh, in large part, the economy wasn't good, and when your economy's not good, that also means that land values themselves will depreciate greatly. But Thomas Jefferson, unfortunately, did not have the same success as his um, law professor and mentor, uh, George Wythe, had when it came to um, being able to free a fair number of um, his slaves. However, Thomas Jefferson did try very hard. I will have to give him credit for this. Jefferson did admit deep down that the practice of slavery was, was an evil. However, Jefferson um, did try around 1776, before the, before the Committee of Five uh, submitted their um, final um, document, that is the finished revision of the Declaration of Independence, um, before everyone else. Thomas Jefferson, in one of the grievances he um, listed against the king, being King George III, had to do with the... Um, not just so much with the practice of slavery, but how the institution of it, of the um, practice itself was conducted. I can't remember the exact wording of it, because I did read about it somewhere, but what I do know is that obviously there was, there obviously for one, there were multiple revisions behind the Declaration of Independence, but two, um, this um, grievance regarding slavery was struck down. It was struck down by uh, by a handful of other delegates whom depended on that on the institution itself, but most notably the South Carolina delegation. From what I know, the four members of the South Carolina delegation, uh, most notably Arthur Middleton and um, Thomas Hayward, uh, basically said to um, Thomas Jefferson, "Look, we're all for independence, like you are." We're all uh, in support of a handful of the grievances you have um, noted that are um, that are beyond um, wrongful doings by the king himself. However, we are dependent upon this institution. So if you submit that into the final draft, we're not going to be able to go along with um, independence. So Thomas Jefferson was left with no other choice but to uh, completely take out that uh, grievance being uh, that of slavery. Towards the end of his life, especially in Richmond, Wythe began ruling against slavery in court cases. So here we go, folks. Towards the end of his life, he's now ruling against the, the institution itself. A good example of a case, I mean, he took up a handful of cases involving the, the practice, but one in particular that I found worth uh, sharing had to do with a uh, case involving family, immediate family from within, Pleasance versus Pleasance in the year 1798. However, um, the matter itself 
didn't just um, happen overnight. It actually dates back to 1771, five years before we officially declared our separation from England. In 1771, John Pleasance, the father of the family, died. In his will, he offered his slaves freedom if the state of Virginia allowed it. His children were given the slaves, but they refused to free them when Virginia passed an act that was short-lived, but it did have existence for a brief period of time known as the Manumission Act of 1782. And for those of you who are wondering, what does manumission mean? It means to uh, free someone. You're uh, allowing them to no longer um, be considered um, an enslaved person in this case. You are, they are now a freed person. Years later, one of Mr. Pleasant's sons sued his other uh, surviving siblings on the grounds that his siblings must free their slaves. Besides ruling in favor of the slaves, which Mr. Wythe did, he also declared the slaves were to be owed a fair share of money by the, by, uh, the Pleasant brothers. So there you have it, folks. Mr. Wythe is against the institution of slavery, but he also believes that even slaves themselves are to be treated equally like their white counterparts. After all, folks, George Wythe has been teaching law not only to just white men, but he's been also teaching them to um, African Americans. After all, he was teaching law to uh, his 16-year-old protege student who was living with him and Lydia Broadnax, um, and of course that black sheep grandnephew, George Wythe Sweeney, the 16-year-old um, protege being Michael Brown, whom he encouraged to uh, take up law. So George Wythe is not afraid to, um, he's not afraid to reach out. He's not afraid to um, go beyond the uh, parameters of the box. He believes education is critical to everyone because all human beings, in Mr. Wythe's eyes, deserve the right to have an opportunity to expand their horizons, to become more than what they might already uh, currently um, reside in status-wise. In other words, they have potential to uh, move on up. They have potential to to ad advance themselves to what we know of now as promotions. So this ruling in the Pleasance case led to the largest manumission of slaves in U.S. history. And when, whenever he presided over slave cases, with always emphasized that slaveholders had to prove their ownership of a slave. So in other words, prior to, prior to all this, any man in Virginia could come up and say, hey, I'm, I'm the owner of uh, slave Sally Jones or slave John Smith. They didn't need to prove their ownership because the judges just took their word for it, not in Mr. Wythe's eyes. This is a very revolutionary thing that he's doing. I would say it's uh, beyond uh, revolutionary. Now, by the time Wythe moves to Richmond, had the city become known for its hospitality? Yes, 
Richmonders took great pride with new arrivals, regardless of class status. And then there was a society known as the Amicable Society. Amicable means friendly. The Amicable Society was established from within the gentry. How about that, folks? The gentry being the highest uh, class of society. The gentry is willing to help newly arrived persons to families in need, as well as establishing several almshouses, which is another word for like a poor house that was designed to take care of those who were destitute and uh, poor, who really didn't have any other um, means of, um, of making themselves um, established without having to um, rely upon um, people from above. So I think we're, you know, as they say, it's not, it's not always good to judge, but we should be reminded that even the gentry are willing to lend a hand to those whom, whom are less fortunate. And I do believe that even Mr. With himself would applaud that. After all, his, his own mother told him to, to um, always stand up for those whom were less fortunate, those whom could not have a voice in their government. This is a good example right here of what Mr. With himself would be advocating. You know, yes, it's great to know that Richmond um, has become a city of uh, hospitality, but I think it's still fair to say that it's also a city that's, uh, that doesn't have much law and order. Now, in Richmond, Mr. With continues to play the role of teacher and spends a great deal of time with law clerks, most notably Henry Clay. I'll talk more about him here in a little bit. But it is fair to say that by being in, by being in Richmond, um, just like he was in Williamsburg, Mr. With didn't miss out on anything. And despite the fact that Richmond is a, a new setting compared to Williamsburg, he still is doing everything in his power to, um, to maintain a good daily regimen or regiment of uh, schedules or of, of activities to where he's not just uh, sitting around doing nothing and letting his mind um, deteriorate. You know, um, most people probably don't know this, but I've known it for a long time, but it's something that I should be reminded of. Which of George With's law students designed Virginia's Capitol building? That answer is Thomas Jefferson. As a matter of fact, Thomas Jefferson, when he was ambassador to France, he was he took a building that he saw in Europe and it and he based that building off of what the new Virginia um, Capitol building should look like. So we have Thomas Jefferson to thank for designing our nation's capital. Now we have to keep in mind, folks, that uh, most people don't know this, but even Jefferson himself was an architect. After all, he spent. 40 years of his life at best um, revising Monticello, revamping it rather. You know, when we see Monticello in person, uh, his home in Charlottesville, it's easy to assume that that's what the home looked like in 1769, the year that the home itself actually got started. Um, no, it, it didn't. It was, um, as a matter of fact, even up until he died, the home never really... Um, the home itself that we know was never what it looked like in his time. Why? Well, there again, he spent all, countless um, hours and years 
um, revising it or, or um, re-improving the home. So when uh, Mr. Wythe arrived to Richmond in 1791, had the city made much progress? Well, progress is a vague word, but uh, based off of what I've talked about in previous podcasts, I believe it would be fair to say that Richmond really has not made a lot of true progress. There were major disparities between the rich and the poor. You know, for example, the homes on Shaco Hill, where Mr. Wythe lived, catered to the wealthy, whom were immune from the city's plight. What do you mean by plight? Well, the, those who lived on Shaco Hill would have been immune from um, diseases that would have come from the bottom. They would have been immune from violence, uh, like crime, robbery, theft, even murder. But of course, I'm sure. But of course, we're all asking ourselves still. Okay, if that's the case, then how in the world did George Wythe become a, a a victim of murder? Well, I think it's fair to say that even in today's time, crime itself is not always confined to the bad parts of town. You can go anywhere. You can go in the nicest of uh, neighborhoods and still hear about a crime being committed, whether it's robbery, uh, theft, vandalism, and in some cases, abduction. I mean, the bottom line is is that um, it would be very easy to assume that, okay, if we live in a nice neighborhood, nothing wrong could ever happen. I wish I could say that's true, but that's wishful thinking. So the same applied even in George Wythe's time. You know, yes, Shaco Hill, the wealthy, who would want to hurt them? Well, who would want to hurt Mr. Wythe? Now, as for those whom lived at the bottom, they resided in overcrowded neighborhoods that had very little planning. In other words, the streets were unpaved. They would often turn to mud in rainstorms, making transportation difficult. There were no sidewalks. The streets flooded with water when the James River overflowed. So in other words, folks, you know, the city of Richmond, I mean, yes, from the previous podcast, they were smart enough to construct a jail that was um, a three-pronged jail that did allow the outsiders to view those from the inside for reminders of what would happen if those on the outside did make their way into the inside. While all that was great, what do you think the city really was missing out on? How about internal improvements? Like, you know, for example, making sidewalks better. How about um, having, um, how about having paved streets so that, uh, Horse and buggies and uh, carts can have a better uh, grasp on where they're going. Because if you have no sidewalks, guess where everybody's going to turn to? Streets that are unpaved. And then what happens when those streets get flooded? You have nowhere else to go. Remember, folks, we don't have mass transit at this time. Despite being the capital of the largest state in the nation, remember folks, in the early 19th century, Virginia is still the largest state. And leading up to George Wythe's death, how many states are there in the Union? 17. Okay, 
we've gone from the, the original 13, which started out as the 13 colonies now to uh, the 13 states. But, in, um, but when George Washington becomes president, three more states uh, will get added to the Union. Well, at least, uh, yes, three, being Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, and Vermont. And then when Thomas Jefferson's president, Ohio, becomes admitted into the Union. So by the time Mr. Wythe passes away, there are 17 states in the Union. But in Virginia, even up until the day he dies, Virginia is still the largest state in the Union. So think about it, folks. West Virginia is still considered to be Virginia. Indiana and Illinois and Michigan and Wisconsin really are considered Virginia. So, despite being the capital of the largest state in the nation, did Richmond ever once become immune from its problems during the time Mr. Wythe lived there from 1791 to 1806? Well, I believe that answer is an obvious no, based off of what I've said earlier, as well as from previous podcasts. But if there was one issue in particular, Richmond had a lot of problems and issues. But if there was one that, it, that was greatly emphasized by Bruce Chadwick, if there was one in particular that the city itself struggled to maintain when it came to keeping close checks on, that, that um, one issue was the following, immigration. How and why immigration? Well, I think all the major cities at the time were being confronted with immigration, especially, you know, Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, Norfolk. They all were dealing with immigration issues, but Richmond in particular was at the top of the chain. Richmond was welcoming immigrants left and right from England, which would have been perhaps expected, but they were also welcoming immigrants from various Caribbean islands as well as South American nations, most notably Brazil. Brazil was uh, known for exporting coffee into Richmond, and Richmonders loved a good cup of coffee, most notably Mr. Wythe, his servant Lydia Broadnax, and his uh, protege student Michael Brown. And those who came from Brazil um, not only brought the coffee, but perhaps established a coffee shop or two. Other nations where immigrants came to were ranged from Germany, Ireland, Scotland, Spain, and France. Well, with this huge influx of immigrants, it does pose a problem for a variety of uh, reasons. For one, the current slave population in Richmond at this time is 31%. You have another 7% who are freed African Americans. But all the foreigners that have come into uh, Virginia, most notably Richmond, 13%. Now, 13% doesn't seem like a lot, but let's do the math, folks. 31 plus 7, 38. 38 plus 13 is 51. 51% of the, of the city of Richmond's uh, population is comprised of non-white, non-American-born um, population sector. So that means 49% of, of Richmond's population is white, but the other 51% is non. To the white population, this is very, very uh, frightening 
given that there is a broad diversity to where perhaps their status could become so greatly diminished that over time the majority would become even more lopsided with non-whites living in the city. Now, of course, George Wythe himself is not, um, it's very fair to say that George Wythe is not a racist. He's not a bigot. He's not anyone who would um, go out and protest the um, presence of um, immigrants in the city. However, his law student, Thomas Jefferson, became deeply concerned not long after Richmond became the new Virginia capital to where America as a nation was taking in too many immigrants. I could see where Mr. Jefferson is deeply concerned about this. If one were to ask me, why do you think Thomas Jefferson is worried about America taking in so many immigrants without any kind of law restrictions or any kind of uh, regulation to curb the excessive growth. I think it could be fair to say that maybe not Jefferson himself, but a handful of others would more than likely have feared that the immigrants coming in would have taken over the jobs to where the natives, being the original Europeans whom had already established their stronghold for many years before these new immigrants arrived would be the ones who would not only take over the jobs but where the natives would become greatly displaced economically so in other words the natives are very concerned about their economic security and their footing in the community why should they be forced to uh, have to compete with outsiders who don't have any knowledge of uh, Virginia or let alone knowledge of how the city works. I think it's fair to say and sometimes unfortunate how people would feel this way even in today's time with uh, immigrants coming in, not just in America but perhaps in other places around the world. What law did Congress pass in 1798, eight years before George Wythe passed away, Congress passes the Alien Act, which restricted the amount of time for which all newly arrived immigrants could live in America. The law itself often sought to displace ethnic groups amongst each other, which meant the natives, being the European Americans whom had already established themselves for quite some period of time, would no longer have to live in fear over becoming the minority. So in other words, this the Alien Act would have allowed for some ethnic groups to come in, but as for others, they would have, um, would have uh, received what you call, or would have gotten tighter restrictions, or what you call a tighter clamp to where, to where um, they would have received a smaller percentage of acceptance versus another ethnic group which would have gotten a greater majority. Now, I should point out who is uh, President of the United States in 1798 when this law goes into effect. John Adams. Now, where's Thomas Jefferson? Thomas Jefferson is Vice President to John Adams. And are Jefferson and Adams of the same party? No. Jefferson is a Federalist, or Jefferson is an Anti-Federalist, 
Jefferson is an anti-federalist, whereas John Adams is um, is a federalist. Um, so, so obviously Jefferson and Adams have their um, obviously have their um, differences um, politically not only over this act, but also over another act, um, which, um, which involves, um, free speech being the sedition act, but that would have to be discussed in another, uh, topic. Now, whom would become George With's new clerk in Richmond? The answer is Henry Clay, whom I mentioned earlier, and it was, and Henry Clay greatly benefited from George Wythe. But then again, I don't believe that there was, I don't believe there was ever a case where a student whom, um, whom was mentored by George Wythe did not lack for anything. If there was a student who did, perhaps we can, perhaps it would be fair to say that Mr. Wythe was not at fault. Maybe it was the student. Perhaps it would have been the student whom would have been at fault for not, um, for not um, benefiting from Mr. Wythe's um, wisdom. So Henry Clay, around the age of 15, um, starts getting tutored by George Wythe. Mr. Wythe teaches him a handful of um, essentials, but most notably the essentials of how to conduct legal research to working with lawyers and judges as well as becoming a better speaker. I like the one on becoming a better speaker. How so? Well, for one, if you're going to be a good lawyer or a politician, you've got to know how to be an effective speaker. You've got to know how to do your research. You've got to be able to work with people from all walks of life, whether it's in being a politician or a lawyer. You're going to, well, politicians have to work with lawyers and judges. But to become a better speaker, what would that lead to down the road for Henry Clay? It just wouldn't get handed to him, but he worked his way up the ladder. He became a congressman from Kentucky, and he became the Speaker of the House. As a matter of fact, he would become the youngest member in Congress to ever become Speaker of the House. He wasn't even 40 years old when he attained that honor. As a matter of fact, he attained that honor of House Speaker right before um, the War of 1812. Did George Wythe believe that the U.S. Constitution itself reigned supreme over state matters and state constitutions? Yes. George Wythe was a Federalist, folks. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say he was. He did believe in a strong central government. He was a firm believer behind what the Constitution itself stood for. But he also knew that no state legislature had the power to override federal le legislation or federal laws. But let alone the U.S. Constitution being our nation's chief legal binding document. So in other words, he, he knew that no state had the right to nullify a federal law. In other words, okay, yes, a state, any state could say okay, I don't think that this federal law is fair, but okay, if you don't believe that that state law itself is fair, or federal law itself is fair, then you would have to go through um, a court of appeals. In other words, take it up with the court. 
So in other words, you can't just uh, decide for yourself, well, I don't want my state to um, support this federal law, so therefore we're going to nullify it. When I think of nullification, I think of a future politician um, down the road um, being a fellow South, Carolina, South Carolinian named John C. Calhoun. It's fair to say that he probably could be best described as the father of nullification because he was the one that fervently believed that South Carolina, that states themselves did have the right to not only just question federal laws, but to nullify them. And believe me, folks, that was one of the earlier attempts of uh, secession. But there again, that's for a whole other topic, but just keep that in mind. So thank heavens we do have people like George With who are firm believers behind what the U.S. Constitution stands for, but also firmly believes that no state legislature has the power whatsoever to be overriding federal legislation. And one of George With's former law students is going to be very, very big on this because he's going to become the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court in 1801, just before his cousin, his third cousin being Thomas Jefferson, takes over as President of the United States, John Marshall. John Marshall upheld George With's ideological principles during his reign as U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice from 1801 to 1835, where the U.S. Constitution took place over state jurisdictions, which allowed the federal government to have broad powers. One particular case that I can give a good example of when John Marshall was um, Chief Justice, it was McCulloch versus Maryland in 1819, and the question itself had to came down to whether or not states had the right to impose taxes on the federal government. <laughs> well, Chief Justice John Marshall um, struck down... Um, the state's, um, I, the state's notion of the right to tax the federal government as an entity. Chief Justice Marshall said that states do not have the authority nor power to levy any kind of tax on the federal government. The federal government is the sole entity who has the power to, um, has the power to tax but at the same time, states have the power to tax, but only from only but the power lies only from within the state itself to tax their people. In other words, folks, we have you know we pay federal taxes, we also pay uh, state taxes, in the, per the state we reside in. Keep in mind that when Chief Justice uh, John Mar when John Marshall was Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, there was no such thing as uh, income tax. That wouldn't come until the start of the uh, 20th century, when um, when the federal government finally was given the power to levy income taxes. So to close out um, part one of "I Am Murdered." We should keep in mind and remember that George With's judicial rulings allowed for friendships to prosper, as well as participation in multiple civic groups to flourish where he became a well-liked member of Richmond society. So, when he dies so suddenly and so unexpectedly, his death sends shockwaves from all corners, considering just how well-revered he was. But yet everyone still wondered 
as to whom exactly wanted the great sage dead. What does sage mean, folks? Well, in this case, if you hear of someone who is a sage, how about referring to them as a wise person? The first time I learned about the word sage was from um, was from a book that I had read that was part of a um, five-volume uh, series on Thomas Jefferson written by the late Dumas Malone, um, whom passed away back in the 1980s. But my uh, father had the... Um, distinct had had the honor to meet him um er, in the early 80s when uh, dr dumas malone uh, autographed his last book on jefferson being the sage of monticello so basically that five volume biography set uh talks about um five six five to six volume biography talks about thomas jefferson's life from the time he was born up until um the time he passes away, the books were titled um, Jefferson the Virginian, uh, Thomas Jefferson, The Rights of Man, The Ordeal of Liberty, Jeff Jefferson the First Term, then the Second Term, and then the Sage of Monticello, being the wise man of Monticello. Uh, Dumas Malone uh, did win the Pulitzer Prize in 1975 for his, um, at the time, for his uh, five-volume biography on Jefferson. I've read all six of those books, but they are uh, phenomenal reads on Jefferson, and they do, um, in some of those books, George Wythe's name is mentioned greatly. But just to let you all know, that's how I came across the word sage um, years ago, was when reading about in the last of uh, Dumas Malone's books on uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, being the sage of Monticello. And yes, Mr. Wythe himself truly was a great sage for his time. So yes, people are just wondering to themselves, whom would want this man dead? He he has mentored so many young men who have gone on to have bright um, political careers, who have gone on to be just successful men in their communities. I mean, this man treats people with respect, dignity. So who wants him dead? Well, we've kind of already established that already being the grandnephew. And when we move on, uh, when I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to be in part two, which is going to be uh, the investigation. We're going to uh, be talking about in part two, to give you all a heads up, the following. The arrest, being the arrest of George With Sweeney. The second part of the investigation. And then we're going to be learning about the men, or I should say the defense attorneys, whom will be representing George Wythe's grandnephew when the trial, which we will be discussing in part three, takes place. So, we have finished the first part, and and when I'm back on the air again next, we're going to be in part two. It's been great to be back on the air again, and for all of you, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support, and if you all know of people out there who would like to listen to my podcasts, tell them to come on to Anchor Podcast, and if they would like to podcast themselves, the opportunities are limitless, and the results are just um, beyond amazing. Thank you for listening, and stay safe.